meditation and affirmation that goes with our lesson 23. The essence of this lesson is about attuning ourselves to higher states of awareness, attuning ourselves to God, and to learn that the clearest way to relate to the infinite is by offering ourselves into those states of consciousness. So Swamiji tells us, place the two concepts, peace and harmony, mentally on the altar of your own consciousness. Think not of what God or of what those concepts can do for you. Think rather that you are offering yourself up into them. Attunement with higher consciousness demands giving of oneself more than asking for oneself. Now when we think about peace and harmony and attuning ourselves to it, think of it exactly as if you were trying to sing a note with your physical voice and someone is beaming the note to you through their voice and you adjust your own pitch and expression until you feel that your vibration of sound is locked into the sound that's being projected. So in that way, we unify ourselves by our own concentration. So there's the vibration of peace and harmony, which in a very real sense are like specific vibratory notes in the universe. And so we want to lift ourselves into that vibration until we feel our own vibration locking in harmony with harmony, with peace, in exactly the same objective way that the voice can hit a specific note. That's what he means by self-offering. Put yourself in attunement with it. And you see then both giving and receiving become one because you are simply vibrating on that wavelength and it comes into you and it goes out from you and there's no distinction. You don't have to ask then for God to give something to you because you have unified yourself with that vibration. Whether you think of God in abstract terms, Swamiji writes, or in more personal human terms, you will receive much more of that consciousness if your flow and concentration and devotion is made an offering and not merely focus inward upon yourself demanding. So you see, if you're demanding harmony and peace, but sitting in whatever vibration of concern motivates that prayer, the likelihood of your being able to be in tune with it is much less. But if you see that in front of you and try to lift yourself into that um, magnetic atmosphere, you see how much more dynamic the prayer is then. So then let us affirm together, in loving thee, I offer thee the peace and harmony of my own being. In loving thee, I offer thee 
the peace and harmony of my own being. In loving thee, I offer thee the peace and harmony of my own being. Om, peace, amen. This lesson this week is extremely interesting. I mean, I say that often, don't I? Lesson 23, God's Place in the Business World. There are 26 lessons. I know some of the later lessons are some of the longest, so I'm not really quite sure what it'll be four, five, and six, but it'll be more than three weeks before we finish. It might be. But we are definitely rounding the far turn and heading into the home stretch. Um, I don't quite have the wherewithal to start with the first lesson and summarize each one, but uh, I really, I hope you all share my feeling that we've really... Um, it's been an extremely interesting reality. Um, as many of you know, I, I face the probability of spending some time in Los Angeles in the next year. Probably, you know, a little more than a week a month is what I'm thinking about. One weekend and a little more than a week. Although I'm, I have to say I'm talking through my hat. I'm just making things up because I really don't know how it's going to come out. But the, the relevant point to this context is we're starting a new project there. I mean, Swamiji is starting a new project by spending these months in Los Angeles and speaking regularly and putting a, a tremendous amount of energy into um, sinking roots for, for Master through Ananda there and through himself. So I've been thinking about entrepreneurship and all of that. It's been very interesting to me how differently my thoughts are because of having studied this course. You know, all that we've learned and all that we've talked about, how to concentrate, how to make something happen, how to visualize. And I, I also realized, among other things, um, I felt very c- comfortable with the whole idea of just starting something new. It just seemed obvious to me that if we just follow the principles here, then we'll just do it. It's not that I haven't known how to do that, because you know, we've been successful here and in other ways, but it's also much more crystallized in my awareness now specific exercises, specific ideas from studying this course have really come through. Um, To the extent to which any of us can claim that, of course, it's a great thing, but I realize that we're going to have to listen and study many times because there's just way too much here. But even seeing a fragment of it is very, very gratifying. Um, That's what spiritual progress is, of course, is to, to come around to the same realities and realize that you are responding completely differently because one's consciousness is different. I mean, that's what the path is over and over is this spiral staircase of here we are again. Oh, no, actually we're not. You know, it looks the same, but it's completely different because I'm different inside. Certainly in my learning from Swamiji over these years, it's amazing to me how the same, same words sound different. One of the... I was talking to someone at dinner last night. One of the eight manifestations of spirit... We tend to think of love and peace and joy and calmness um, when we when the first thing when we say the eight manifestations of God we go love peace joy calmness but one of them is wisdom and it's it's a it's a fact on the spiritual path and a point that really needs to be claimed for the value that it has that merely to understand things a lot more clearly is a demonstration of the power and the presence of God in one's life. It's one of those eight manifestations is to just be wiser and to see a situation from a different point of view. 
And even sometimes our reactions might not be instantaneously what we want, but nonetheless, we find that this deeper level of wisdom is coming into it. And we just understand the whole thing in a way that we didn't understand it before. So I I hope that at least some of you can share with me my feeling of Lesson 23, that we're really different than we were when we started with Lesson 1. And I feel extremely gratified to have been on this journey. And we're not finished yet. Okay, the lesson number three, 23 is called God's Place in the Business World. Um, I recently did a webinar um, on, you know, to help promote the Material Success and Happiness course, which is the formal name of these lessons we're going through. And they just asked me to randomly pick a lesson. And I more or less randomly picked a lesson because... It had a good title, How to Magnetize Money. And uh, it, it was well attended over the internet, as these things can be, uh, because of, I think, to a large extent, because of the title, because it was such a good title. And a, a woman friend who, who listened over the computer came and talked to me a few days later, and she just said she was so gratified to hear such an integrated approach to material success and spiritual life I'm, I'm accustomed to these teachings and they no longer startle me, but she's much newer. And just to sort of see how the spiritual realm can be brought all the way down into the most practical without being diminished. And that, that spiritual aspiration can be lived at the highest level without becoming impractical on the most um, everyday level. And this is exactly not only what Swami Kriyananda's a particular genius is, but this is really, to a very large extent, the definition of why Paramahansa Yogananda incarnated, because he he puts it in a in a more global sense, which is that e- it's time for East and West to unite. But what East and West represent is over the period of Kali Yuga when man's consciousness became too unsubtle. I was going to say gross; it also became gross, but gross in the sense of unsubtle, and that. The, 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 the vibration of the planet, so to speak, because there are always individual exceptions, because whatever's going on on the planet is just a backdrop for soul evolution, and soul evolution is never defined by its environment. We simply choose the place, and sometimes very evolved souls come to a planet when it's at a, a lower overall state of consciousness because they come to serve, and then many others will come, or an individual will choose to be on the planet when the consciousness is low so that they can just leave everything behind and not even have to think about the planet. Um, there's a, a, one of the many intriguing stories that's told about the, the odd things that happen in India with yogis. There was one, and I can't remember all the details, but it was some yogi who was buried under many feet of mud, a meditating yogi, and he was accidentally uncovered when they were excavating to put a building in. And they find the, the body of this yogi who has been in a state of suspended an- animation because of his deep meditation for many, many centuries, I guess. You know, it's hard for, for us to even comprehend it, but if you're not breathing and your heart isn't beating, um, th- somehow or another the body is maintained, but it doesn't age and it doesn't go through the normal process. So he comes out of his... He's brought out somehow from his meditative state. And he says... What yuga is this? You know, in other words, you know, what, what, what age of the planet is going on? And when they said Kali Yuga, he said, oh, I'm not interested. 
And then he just sat down and left his body. He just didn't really want to live on the planet at such a gross level. But uh, imagine, I love that. Just like, imagine being so detached from this world that you have to look out and ask what yuga this is. But of course, it's all just a play of light and shadow. So if you're not tuned in to the details of that, then how would you even know? But in any case, at this time, and one of the reasons Yogananda came is because he seems to bear this ongoing spiritual responsibility for this planet. And so he was Arjuna when it was Dwapara Yuga descending into Kali Yuga, when the planet was going down in consciousness and everything was getting worse. And now he's Yogananda when it's Kali Yuga ascending to Dwapara. It's essentially the same point, but one was going down and one is going up. And now what he's trying to bring back is this integrated understanding that everything in creation is spiritual. And I was starting to say East and West... The East, over this descending and ascending Kali Yuga, kept the awareness that life is a, of spirituality as the definition of life, even though India, as the custodian of that truth, has gone through its own darker period. Nonetheless, underneath it, um, the, the country of India, the culture of India, has never lost the awareness of self-realization as the goal of life. It's just there right now asked me once, called a known and mystic band, that oh, they, they just don't know it in the same way. You know, every Indian knows it, whether they're adhering to it or not, it's just cellular with them. And I was amused, just to go on for this theme for a moment, a friend of mine who happens to be Indian, who works for some local company founded by two bright young American men, they started, and those men are just, you know, bright, young, materialistic American men who hit it really lucky with this company, and maybe in their, they're in their 30s now, I think. They went to India to open a branch uh, company over there. And she was so amused because there is, you know, the CFO, the CEO, and all these big people all dressed in white cortes, and they're there with the pujaris, and they're cracking coconuts against the wall of the thing, and they're throwing rice into the fire because... No Indian company would dream of launching itself except at the astrologically auspicious time with the proper ceremonies. (laughs) And she knows for these men it didn't mean anything to them, but there they were and it was what had to be done. But there's such a a cross-mingling happening. And that's a very superficial expression of it, but it's symbolic of something much deeper. And that much deeper is the practicality of the West is being combined with the mysticism of the East to create an entirely new reality. We're not going to become Hindus. We're not going to become Catholics. We're not going to become necessarily followers of Jesus or followers of Krishna in the way that people think about that. But what we're going to have is a totally new understanding that's not new in the history of, of creation, but is a, a, a resurgence of a deeper reality. So so Amiji is approaching that question extremely directly because this is not necessarily a question that's been asked yet. Well, what place does God have in the business world? Because there's so much of a thought that, you know, there's my material life and there's my, my spiritual life. And a lot of times people have a little trouble understanding how those two integrate because one seems about taking care of myself and asserting my will on the world and the other seems about we just sort of have these imaginary ideas of what it must be like. When we were first starting Ananda Community, which is now Ananda Village 
in the um, 70s, early 70s, there were a lot of uh, loony things going on up there because um, a great deal of people's understanding of spirituality was drug-induced in those years, you know, just based on these sort of uh, blowout chemical visions that people had that didn't necessarily, were not necessarily grounded in a deep understanding. And even to the extent that people had graduated or never gone through that route and had come to this, there were no, there were no examples around. You know, we just didn't know. We, were, we had a, a certain what I would call um, karmic memory, um, but not a, a deep understanding. So people were making it up left and right. And one of the ways that people made it up a lot was to have this uh, very uh, dreamy relationship to the spiritual path in which any kind of actual effort, especially effort to make money or take care of yourself or to accomplish anything, was just poo-pooed as being entirely unspiritual. Swami Kriyananda found himself really in a bind on this because at the beginning of Ananda Village, 1968, when, when he bought the first land, until, you know, sort of late into the 70s, into the 70s, I should say. For those very first years, 100% of the money, virtually, that made that community work uh, was earned by him. Gradually, Jyotish and Jaya and others who are still with us, who had a more mature understanding, began to contribute. But for a number of years, he lived in the Bay Area, taught a tremendous number of classes, earned all the money, bought the land, paid for it, built the buildings... And then when the community land was bought, he was paying the mortgage, and then a very small coterie of people who were working with him began to help him with that. And then there was a whole other group who had come out of some sincere um, intention, but their concept of the spiritual path just didn't include um, breaking a sweat or dirtying their hands with uh, the world of matter. And so paying the mortgage and whenever Swamiji would try to sort of bring up practical matters, they would chastise him for not having enough faith in God. You know, to, that they, if they just trusted and followed the flow and went with their feelings, then everything would be fine. Swamiji said the most annoying thing about it was the fact that he therefore would go out and earn the money and pay the mortgage um, supported their point of view. <laughs> because as far as they could see, without effort, it was still happening. <laughs> and he, but of course, he couldn't just let the thing collapse. He had to keep going until more mature minds took hold. But over all the years, at least speaking also for myself, this integration of, um, of really how does God fit into environments that seem to have nothing to do with God. And it's a vitally important question to answer for a few very simple reasons. The way life is at this stage of Kali Yuga transitioning into Dwapara Yuga, we have to spend a great deal of our time doing something other than meditating. You know, it's almost no one has, for almost no one is it karmically appropriate to spend all their time meditating. Yes, it happens. And yes, it's a very high level of of life, and some people get to do that. But most of us, especially most of us who are Americans and most of us who are disciples of Master right at this particular time, it's just not the life we're given. It's not the temperaments we have. We wouldn't even necessarily advance more spiritually doing it because we don't have the karmic clarity to do it. That doesn't mean that we can't 
meditate a lot. It just means that there's always this other dimension of life. Plus, life is inconveniently arranged to support us. Even the community of Ananda, all these 40 years later, we're still, it's just, it's never been God's plan with us to deposit upon us great huge sums of money. Even though quite a few times we've suggested that we think that would be a really super idea. I just, I would love for Swamiji to just have an, an unlimited checkbook and could just do whatever he felt inspired to do without everybody having to stop and figure out how we're going to get the next $3,000 to go forward. Um, We've often argued with Divine Mother that at this point it wouldn't spoil us to have lots of money. That earlier it might have, but apparently she disagrees. And on the other hand, to be very fair about it, having to earn our own way, and I'm speaking collectively, has really been the best thing that ever happened to us. Because if you have to earn your own way, you have, a, you have to stay in constant touch with the reality of your own energy. I think one of the reasons that Self-Realization Fellowship has gotten a little off course, or conceivably a lot off course, is that they don't have to earn their own way. They were gifted by Rajasi, you know, back in the early 50s, and other notable, substantial donations have been given to them so they can chart their course without actually having an, uh, an interface that money creates as to whether or not the energy we're putting out is being received by the universe in such a way to continue to support us. If you have, if you have a certain unlimited amount of money, you can just self-declare. I mean, this is the great curse of wealth. Is it gives you this illusion of power, is really what that word is. It gives you the illusion of power. And because you have a certain ability to manipulate if you have a certain amount of money but it can also make you very confused. Um, But in as much as we have to spend a great deal of our life doing things that seem to have no direct spiritual purpose, and yet the teaching as Dwapara Yuga is able to express it, where we're we're out of this dogmatic um, God created the universe in seven days and this is what it is and these are the rules and these are the rules you follow... We're understanding that, that, that spiritual life is about consciousness. And consciousness doesn't begin and doesn't end. It's everywhere. And there's no moment in which we are more or less in the presence of God. We are simply more conscious of it or not conscious of it. I know, um, I've, and I've shared this with you all before, that this is one of the many lessons that I learned from marrying David because his perception of life from a very young age, even before he got on the spiritual path, and he got on the path very young, in his early 20s, was the simple fact that um, energy is energy. And if you just put out, you know, it's life is about putting out dynamic, positive, productive, joyous energy. And when he began to understand the spiritual path, it just all sort of rolled together. I was very much of the, these things are spiritual and these things are not spiritual and I was always a little bit divided in my energy, and I learned from him how to begin to just integrate that. And so if our job is to earn money, we just earn money. It's all the same thing. It's all just about putting out right energy and right consciousness. So what Swamiji approaches in this letter, uh, this lesson, is he, he tries to sort of give us a concept of God that we can carry anywhere. And the concept of God that it in, in no way is contradicted 
by the practical realities of earning a living. And he starts by giving us the picture, which still exists in India, even though to a large extent they're shifting away from old traditions into new realities. But one of the things that's most um, delightful and charming for uh, those of us who are Americans who go over there to visit for the first time, I've been visiting India for about 20 years, more than 20 years, and in that period of time things have shifted already a great deal. Um, but still, this is largely true, not as, not as much as it used to be. But in this country, especially when we first started going to India 20, 25 years ago, to have an interest in spiritual things is still a, a minority pursuit. When you meet someone else who's interested in meditation, interested in being a devotee, has an understanding of self-realization, has read autobiography of a yogi, knows about Master and Babaji, you're sort of excited about that. And one also has this idea, because it's true, that this pursuit is not a, 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 a pursuit that cuts across all social and um, economic classes. It tends to be a pursuit in America of people of a certain amount of education, of a certain amount of material success, people who have like the capacity to, to manifest the benefits that a worldly life will give and therefore have achieved sufficient experience of that to realize that there's got to be something more. So in America, you rarely see impoverished people embracing the path of self-realization because their thought form is, I need to get some money. I need to get some of the American dream. I don't need to have a teaching that tells me I don't need that. So the first thing that's surprising when you go to India is, of course, that it, it, it's all classes of people. Everybody has this reality of self-realization in more or less sophisticated degree, but you know, simple people are just as likely to seek, seek out the darshan of saints as educated people. Now, the ashrams are filled with the educated people because it's the same thing. You don't renounce the world till you have a little bit of it. That's just the way karma works. But what you see when you go to that country is all over the place you see spiritual images. Little, you know, little niches on the sidewalk. And you go into a business and there's a little altar there and there's offerings made to that. And during the holiday seasons, all the businesses are... And it's, it's a little more than the way we decorate for Christmas in the sense that it's, it's very spiritually oriented. There's statues of Durga that pujas are carried out and then the statues are ceremonially taken to the river at the end of the celebrations. And it's just kind of an all-pervasive reverence. And Swamiji talks himself about being in this printing company and seeing an errand boy just doing some small task in the office but stopping to bow reverently to some little statue of Ganesha or some other deity that the employer also thought to put in a conspicuous place in his office. So that's one obvious way that you bring God into the workplace. You have little altars and little spiritually reminding places, or like I was talking about this American company, you do an, a puja on the auspicious day and you ask the gods to bless what you're doing, or you have certain celebrations. And one of my friends who bought a flat in uh, Gorgown at the time actually had the karma to buy into what became an extremely valuable um, condominium before anybody knew it was going to be valuable. And because the Indian system is more like traditional class-conscious societies, in America you take possession of your house and then you pay for it. 
But in societies where the aristocracy is wanting to hold on to the power of owning land, it's set up that you pay for it and you can't, get, have, you can't take possession until you've paid for it. So he bought this flat and paid for it for a number of years and it just sat there and then he was able to move into it. He actually bought it before it was built. But the irony of all that, the reason that's relevant, is he had to wait all this time to, buy, to be able to finish paying for it before he could have possession. And then he had to wait another six months until the, the priest said it was the auspicious day when he could move in. And then they, set, they, they, they had, had a fire inside and they burned incense and they broke coconuts against his newly painted walls. And then he had to repaint the whole apartment before he could finally move in. But we, we laughed with him. He said, but it was unimaginable. It was just simply unimaginable that he would have moved in without following all those procedures. You know, it's just the way it is. It's the way it's done. Because there's this kind of reverence either for dogmas or rituals or for deities. Now, what Swamiji is trying to, and he, and he says it very interestingly in this le- lesson, he says there's a certain um, consciousness that also goes along with a lot of people when they think about bringing God into business. And that is, oh Lord, please, please make sure that this contract goes through. Oh, please make this deal work. Oh, please give me the full 15% commission. You know, just whatever it might be where, where we have this idea that if we propitiate God in the right way, then he will be partial to uh, what we're partial to. That, the, that we have these particular egoic desires and needs and that God will be on our side. So when he starts this lesson by saying how amused he was in high school when the football team would pray for victory. He said, like, why would God, like, care whether this team wins or that team wins? And he, he says, is it just a matter of who says their prayer first? You know, it's just like the whole concept really is just preposterous. And then he begins to talk about, you know, the, that the human mind just cannot comprehend how extraordinarily vast and impersonal, you know, the infinite spirit really is. And to even imagine that our little egoic preferences, you know, that we have to wave them in front of God and that he's actually going to do it our way. And so often we think about God and business as that kind of prayer. We'll do this puja, we'll do this ceremony, we'll just ask this prayer, we'll do this and that, and then uh, I'll get what I want. And that's hardly what we're trying to make happen here. But we also can't just leave us there because that's just not the whole picture. And Swamiji himself writes, and it's very interesting, about how his own spiritual evolution, he first could imagine this vast impersonal force of, of the divine spirit. But it took him longer to realize that, as he puts it, that infinity implies infinitesimal as well. Because, um, and this is what he goes on to express in great detail in this lesson, we'll trace some of it through. Both realities exist simultaneously, which is there's this vast impersonal indifference, and then there is this tremendous sense of intimate involvement. And the balance between those two realities is the, is the real key to what true spirituality is. Let me really try to say this more carefully. Uh, uh, when we were in Los Angeles um, a couple of weeks ago, we were, I met people that I hadn't met before 
who were devotees of Master, and so there was a lot of getting acquainted conversation. How did you get on the path? How long have you been on the path? Which is always wonderful conversation because you often hear the most fabulous stories. So there was a woman um, who talked to us, and we, she's in her mid-40s, and we were asking her, you know, have you been on devotee for a long time? She said she's really been devoted to Yogananda since she was about 12. And it turned out that her parents had introduced her because they were also involved. Um, And then she told the story of how she really became devoted to Yogananda. And she seems like a nice woman. I'm not quite sure what work she does, but I don't think that she's a world leader. I, I don't think that the drama of her personal incarnation will, you know, make it into the history books. She's just someone like all of us who's just living their life in, according to the highest principles that she can. She is a very nice woman. She said when she was about 12, I think, or maybe a little bit younger than that, she became very ill with pneumonia. And she was in the hospital and was really, there was a real fear that she might die. And like in her subconscious or child mind, the difficulty she was having, breathing and so on, translated into a dream that she was drowning. So in a, in a very vivid way, because she still remembers it all these years later, more than 40 years later, 30 years later, she um, felt that she was drowning and she was just going to go under and was not going to be able to breathe and that would be the end. And in the dream, this beautiful woman appeared to her and lifted her out of the water and saved her life. And she awoke from the dream, and at that point her pneumonia began to get better. And that was, she told her parents about this beautiful woman who'd saved her life, and of course they just thought it was some fantasy dream. Later, her parents took her to Lake Shrine, and she saw a picture of Master, and she pointed to him, that's the beautiful lady that saved me when I was drowning in the hospital. And of course she thought it was a woman, but it was a man. But... uh, And from that point, she's become very devoted. Um, She told another story of something less dramatic, but also very moving, that had happened to her. Several things struck me about that all at the same time. The first was, you know, you could imagine when Swami Kriyananda was ill, that Master might want to save him. It would be obvious, because he was going to do some great things for Master. So when Swamiji, when he was in India, and he was hooking a microphone together with their 210 volts of current and there was a short in it and all of a sudden the electricity started going through his body and he couldn't let go of these metal pieces because it made his body rigid and in that instant the fuse blew so then the electricity stopped and he fell he said he actually has has had sort of heart problems and he thinks that was one of the things that caused it all that electricity but in that instant the fuse blew So you could see, well, Master really needed to save him because look at all that he's going to do. And I'm not disrespecting this woman at all. But what it it demonstrated to me and reminded me of is that God is not concerned about world history only. That, That there's an infinitesimal personal concern for the welfare of every single atom of creation. Everything in creation is taken care of by the infinite. You know, the, the delicate way in which plants and flowers are made, the way insects work, the way animals are able to sort of move through, and above all, the way a devoted soul 
is going to grow into the light and gradually expand their consciousness and become closer and closer to God is a matter of great concern to Master. So much so that he would find his, his little child, Devotee, and pull her out of her, her drowning dream. And it was so um, such a reminder to me of how, and this is how Swami writes about it, God is impersonal, but the impersonal means that, there, that God has no selfish motive. His, his desire is only for our welfare. And the impersonality is the way the infinite spirit is toward itself. There's no egoic self around which things revolve. But personal in the sense of complete loving commitment to every individual's aspiration. And as we go on in this understanding, that becomes so critical. Because what that's saying is, when we reach upward to the Spirit, we have to understand that the Spirit is eager to reach down to us. Now there was another aspect of her story that was just sort of a sidelight, which is very touching. She was sure that Master was a woman. Now, it would be easy to say, well, he had long hair, he was wearing a flowing robe, which I think, in fact, she saw him, the figure was dressed in orange. I could be putting that detail in, I don't remember. She just spoke of him as a beautiful woman. Oftentimes, people think of Master's picture as a a female form. But the um, dynamic of creation is dual. There's male and female, there's masculine and feminine in it. The masculine is the impersonal, and when we speak of the spirit beyond creation, it, it's right to speak of it as he. That's why Jesus said, our father who art in heaven. He spoke of, of the father as being a little distant from creation because that's the masculine reality, the spirit beyond. But the, the spirit descending into this world and, and making each one of us uh, and, and taking care of each one of us, that's the feminine. And, and Jesus called it the comforter, which of course the word comforter, it's not a, it's not a gender-specific word, but, but the concept of the comfort is the feminine concept, isn't it? So Jesus spoke of the Father beyond, and then he said, but after I am gone, I will send you the comforter, and through the comforter you will know many things that you were not able to know. Excuse me. <coughs> and in that often sort of veiled way, Jesus was speaking on a much deeper level. We do a tremendous disservice to spiritual truth when we try to make spiritual truth gender neutral because it isn't. These have different realities. So even for us, we have to realize as we move through this world that even though we have to be able to simultaneously embrace and relate to both these realities, we recognize this magnificent impersonal nature of creation itself and at the same time have the capacity to open our hearts and relate in this very intimate way to this comforting force that is also there with us. And this is what how Swamiji is beginning to try to get us to understand So that when we think about God in the business world, God in the materialistic world of what we're doing, that we don't just make it sort of silly and anthropomorphic and egocentric. The the 
um, pantheon of gods that the Greeks and Romans had, you know, was just a, a, a zoo of human characteristics just carried out on this sort of monumental scale of jealousies and betrayals and fights. And it was a sort of a heroic version of human life. And it was quite entertaining on a certain level, but it, 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 was, not, it was not deeply wise. Of course, many of those tales were very deeply symbolic. And if you could understand what they were really illustrating, they really did say something to you. But the idea of there just being like, the, the people that we actually worship are just like us, only just a little more powerful with the same egocentric desires is, I mean, it's enough to make you commit suicide. It's just absolutely, like, utterly disheartening. And at the same time, to sort of measure our relationship to God by whether or not he comes through on the, on the bargain that we've set up. Uh, you know, I used to be, people will say things, I used to have a lot of faith in God, but then I lost my job and I lost my house and now I don't believe in God anymore. It's like, if he's nice, I love him. And if he isn't, I don't. It's not a very generous-hearted way. So what Swamiji is wanting us to understand is the only thing that the infinite spirit wants from us The only thing that God wants from us is that we expand our consciousness. And it's not even that God wants that from us. That is the very definition of the relationship. And Swamiji reiterates for us. It's very interesting because Swami will often repeat the same stories in different contexts. And um, just as I was saying earlier, we begin to understand things that we may have heard before, either because they're in a different context or we're in a different context. And he he traces out this critical shift in his own awareness that happened just six months before he found autobiography and met Master. This critical shift that was absolutely necessary for him to be able to receive uh, and to relate to that reality was when he started really asking these very deep and serious questions. What is the nature of reality? What is the nature of a human being? What is the nature of God? And he'd always rejected the idea of God, because he could never find a concept that actually satisfied the, the, the longing of his heart and the power of his intellect. And he, he says in there, what I've often found to be true, that often people will come to Ananda or to our meditation classes, to programs here, and they'll declare that they're atheists. And most of the time, they're atheists because nobody has ever presented to them an idea of God that was intelligent enough to embrace. And I've commented, and I'll remind you all here again, that the English language really has no specific words. So that when a person says God, it really, it's a wide open definition. And it can mean anything you want it to mean, and often a dogma attached to it makes it a repellent word. So what Swamiji really wants us to understand is that there is a final infinite reality. Master has that wonderful um, uh, answer to the question. Is there any end to evolution? And he wasn't thinking of the evolution of form so much as the evolution of consciousness. Is there any end to the evolution of consciousness? No, Master said, you keep evolving until you become endless, until you become infinite. Now, Swamiji describes this long walk that he took out by the ocean and how he began to understand, and, and this, this is the way he puts it, which is so powerful, 
that if we were created by the infinite, if there is a unity here, where could consciousness come from? Where could awareness come from? You can't just manufacture it out of nothing. People try as hard as they can to make the most clever machines in the world, but they don't have self-awareness. There's this awareness that characterizes us, and growth for everyone is always an expansion of awareness. And Swamiji follows this, and you can read it in the lesson the way he describes it, but just coming to understand that we, we have to be made out of that consciousness itself. As he puts it, God could not have sculpted us like out of a piece of rock because there was no rock to do it from. And the difference between being manifested from the inside out and being created from the outside in. You know, all of creation in the material world, you do it from the outside in. You build it with, with something else. But living things manifest from the inside out. Just you have a little tiny seed, and you plant that seed, and then something happens from the inside of that seed, and it begins to express itself outward, and it can grow into a huge tree. All, all things in creation grow from some tiny source, even us. I see little babies. We were sitting at the dinner table in the community the other night, and there's a little boy who's about six, and I was sitting with a couple of full-grown, solid-sized men, you know, they weren't, they weren't delicate, small men, just solid men. We looked down at the table with this little six-year-old, and he wasn't actually looking at us, but he was very inquisitive about something, and so the whole dynamic of his six-year-old face was extremely clear to us. And I just thought, you know, every one of us was that small and much smaller. And we sat there, and we had that particular point of view right at that moment. In fact, we were watching some little children. This little boy was about four, had this, one of these big plastic bats, you know, baseball bats, and um, somebody was throwing a ball at him. He was actually very good, and they threw the ball, and he had the wherewithal to whack it. He completely exploded with delight. I mean, as much as a human being in a small body could be delighted, He's holding up the bat, he's running, he's screaming, he's jumping up and down in a purely delighted manner that charmed us all with this just total commitment to the fact that the bat and the ball had connected and he'd been there to make it happen. And, and all of us were there at one point or another, weren't we? But you see, we all grew from the inside out, sperm and ovum united. And then just somehow inherent in that advent of consciousness and the little seed has consciousness just out of that it's already in there and it just begins to manifest doesn't it? isn't that amazing you know and whenever we actually do creative work that's really inspired it feels like that doesn't it it just somehow there's a seed thought and then it begins to manifest when we do a project that's really inspired there's a seed thought and it manifests and then there's other things that we do because something has to be done, so we just sort of paste it together. You know, one can feel the difference between different kind of projects. And not everything is deeply inspired, but those that really grow from the inside are really magnificent. Now, what is that about? And there's another question that's implied by what Swamiji has written here, which is, is there any end to that? How far can we expand from the inside out? And this is where Master answered that question, infinitely. And what are we here to do except to just continue to grow from the inside out 
until we have literally become infinite. The material body that we make, the things that we do, those are just the vehicles through which this potential within us is given life and possibility. Now, let's take a little bit of a break, and then we'll come back and finish these thoughts. Okay. What Swami does in this lesson, which is so interesting, is that he starts with the Indian devotee pronouncing in front of some little deity. And then he takes us through this very, very impersonal way of looking at things, and I want to finish that a little bit. And then we go back to reverence at the end. So it's a very interesting deconstruction and reconstruction. Okay, in the middle, which is where we are now, Swamiji is really trying to get us to understand, in essence, what spiritual really is. And if we are made from the spirit, and if that spirit is infinite, and if the nature of that spirit is such at Ananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss, Swamiji argues logically to help us to understand this, but I, I'm not going to try to persuade, I'm just going to assume it. So Satchitananda is the substance of creation. Our potential is to live always in the awareness of that Satchitananda. So every minute of our life, of every minute of everything for all eternity, we are always in some, uh, we are always living in a, a, a state of potential greater or lesser awareness. And it really doesn't make any difference how we define that, what we call that, where we are on that spectrum, what we think about it, whether we like, whether we're in that state or not, whether it makes us mad, whether it makes us happy. We simply are. We are, we are consciously moving in an upward, expanding awareness toward joy, or we're, doing, we're behaving in such a way with our attitudes and our reactions that we are consciously shrinking our awareness and trying to pull it away. And we, we bobble around a lot because we have different vrittis in the spine, different karmas that become activated, and we have periods where everything is flowing in a very upward direction, and then some intense challenge will come, and we'll become small and frightened, and we'll try to contract again, and then we gather ourselves together and we go forward. And in this way, like, a tide, like the tide coming in, the, you know, when the tide is coming in, waves sometimes go way up the beach and sometimes they're smaller again. But the overall tide is always coming in. Of course, the tides vary. And in this case, the tide is simply going to come in. It's going to, we're going to merge with the infinite. And so the progress in one lifetime, in one day, in one incarnation, in many incarnations, is the tide coming in. And at all times, we have this goal in front of us and we are, we are working to be more and more um, doing those things which bring us toward higher awareness. And what are those things? Concentrated energy, expansive energy, selfless energy. And one of the things that Swamiji comments about is it's always directional. And he, then he's talking about the different ways that we've defined expansive versus contractive energy. The caste system, the gunas are two examples of that. But nothing is completely pure. Even if you're a shudra, if you're of the most con, uh, contracted, least expansive stage of development, you can still be a better, more expansive shudra than the worst kind of shudra. If you're very rajasic, which is just active, you can be more sattvically rajasic, or you can be more tamasically rajasic. 
You know, you can be active in different directions. You can be active very rajasically, chanting God's name and standing up and playing the bells and dancing around. Or you can be rajasic, playing a video game and just being frantic about whether that's going to happen. Both of them are rajasic, but one is a little more sattvically rajasic and one is just taking you in a downward direction. So all of our life experience, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, is some in, you know, emanating from the inside direction of energy. So what Swamiji is trying to say to us is that um, we have to define our success in life as not any kind of static achievement we might have. We might have our five-year plan for our business. We might have our financial goals for our family. Whatever, we might have a house or something that we're trying to acquire. We might work hard to make that happen. I was in a situation once where I was listening to some men talk about who had been young friends together and were now older friends together. And for, for them, in the reality that they had both grown up in and then lived through, to have bought a house and actually paid it off, paid off the whole mortgage, was a tremendous achievement. And, you know, both of them were congratulating each other because both of them had actually done that. And it was interesting because I, I'd never really even thought about it. But, you know, to have set that goal and to work assiduously to acquire it. Now, you can say, my success was I bought the house and I paid off the whole mortgage. But, of course, when you die and are born again, you have to start over with a new mortgage. So it's not like something that you can really hold on to or something could come through and whip through and, well, take the value of your house down to nothing, as an example. But um, what they were really describing, and both of these men were conscious enough to recognize it to a certain extent, I should say, was that what they had done is they had concentrated, they had disciplined themselves, they had made choices that uh, led to... um, They'd stuck with it and been disciplined in what they'd done. And their feeling of satisfaction was only secondarily that they'd paid off the house. What they were really looking at is all that they had accomplished within themselves, all that they had grown from the inside out of their own consciousness. And so what Swamiji is fundamentally urging us when he talks about God's place in the business world is to realize that wherever we are, we're always doing the same thing, which is we're trying to expand our sympathies and our understanding and our awareness. And if we're in work, the way we bring God into that place, even if nobody will ever let you use the word, is to realize that here I am expanding my compassion, my sympathies, my love, my ability to concentrate, my self-discipline, all the things that are going to keep me moving in an upward direction. And then what is the material world and what is not? What is spirit and what is not? What is worldly and what is not? This is what I was saying at the very beginning This is what I learned a lot from David, who was an entrepreneur and a successful businessman before he ever came to Ananda. And I felt like a very spiritual person to a very large extent because I was so poor. And I I just had that really strong connection in my mind that I couldn't really accomplish anything because if I accomplished something, that might be worldly. And it was very important not ever to accomplish anything. But you see, in doing that, what I was doing was being very contractive in my consciousness and very afraid. And, I, and so I was trying to grow my spirituality from the outside in, 
this is what it should look like. So in order to make it look like this, this is what I'll do. I remember when Swamiji criticized me for just dressing so badly. I was a, a young woman. I was a renunciate. I was living in a monastery. I was you know, being a nun. And still he said to me, do you have to just wear that ugly thing, whatever it was? And I thought, well, we should, you know, this is a good ugly thing. Isn't it good to look ugly? But for me, it was very contractive to be like that. I wasn't growing my spirituality from the inside out in greater and greater awareness. I was thinking, well, I should be indifferent to the way I look, so I'll look ugly. But there was nothing inwardly inspired and expansive about that, you see? See the tremendous difference between things that are inwardly inspired? Swamiji is always telling us, whatever you do, do it with inspiration. And he says, be original. And that doesn't mean, and he emphasizes this, that what you do is unique and has never been seen before. It means that it's an emanation from your point of origin. In other words, your seed is putting out flowers. Your seed is putting out leaves and branches. And what you're doing is a movement from the inside out. And you you might be very ordinary in your expression. But that's why... um, the, the saints say, you know, one act of divine love is, is worth more to God than, you know, all the railroads and the buildings and all the churches built in his honor. Because if it's only from the outside in, it's not really growing your own divine plant. It's a very, very interesting thought. Swami says over and over again, spirit creates from the inside out. And, and that's what we, as children of God, in order to realize our divinity, have to recognize that it, isn't, it doesn't make any difference really how it manifests as long as it's manifesting genuinely from within us. This is where we become in tune and so on. Now, this is the other part of it. Because I was saying Swamiji starts with reverence, then he goes through this very impersonal, and then he comes back to reverence. He said, because... The reason we bring God back into this, whether or not your company or your business will allow you to, is because otherwise we're just trying to manufacture this out of the ego self. And we don't... Um, let, me, let me try to get some of these thoughts exactly as he said. Um, um, what, 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 what he was trying... I don't know what he's saying. He said the spiritual path differs from trying to climb a mountain in this significant way. The mountain does not know you're trying to climb it. And the mountain can't help you try to climb it. You have to use your willpower to climb it, but the mountain itself is not um, participating. When we're trying to move into the power of the Spirit, it's a living conscious force that's going to reach, reach down and welcome us. And he said we have to call that God. Because it's much larger than the consciousness we already know. And this is where at a certain point, we're not merely um, trying to develop ourselves, we become devotees. And a a characteristic of the path of Ananda is this um, involvement with the heart, this feeling of devotion, this simple idea that we are not merely developing ourselves, but we are devoted to this greater reality. Because... The only thing that exists in creation is the Satchitananda, this bliss consciousness. And this bliss consciousness expresses love. Love is an aspect of bliss. And when we focus on trying to reach into that, 
we discover something that's actually there. Often when I've been teaching the beginning meditation classes and I would try to explain to people about how meditation is a relationship would be the words that I would use. And I would say you, you, many people will teach you different ways in which to try to interiorize your consciousness or calm yourself down. And sometimes people will teach you, and this has a place, but it's not exactly the way we teach. It's a subtle difference where they will have you create a fantasy of something that you really would enjoy. I'm in Hawaii, I'm on this beach, and, and you just try to calm yourself down by projecting yourself into a fantasy world. And the idea is that I just create this reality and then I live in it for a while. But what we're trying to do when we're trying to be devotees, and we're really trying to progress in this path of self-realization, is we are trying to attune ourselves with the reality that is actually there. And we are trying to lift ourselves out of the imaginary world and put ourselves in tune with that which is really there. And even though we might have to use our imagination at first to project ourselves into it, it responds to us. And this is what everyone experiences at a certain point, that I'm putting out effort and then it becomes effortless. It's like I'm trying to get into the current and then suddenly the current is taking me. And then this again is where, when we were doing the affirmation and the meditation both, this is how Swamiji is talking to us about this, that it isn't just a question that we ask God, come to me, you know, with the ego self, do this for me, help me, make it better, let, it, you know, let me feel better, let me be good, or whatever it is we're asking for. It's that we ourselves try to offer ourselves into that reality. And this is where he's saying um, in the affirmation, um, I offer thee the peace and harmony in loving. In loving thee, I offer thee the peace and harmony of my own being. It's a very interesting and subtle affirmation. Because you see, first we're declaring that there is peace and harmony in my own being. I'm not just saying to God, give me this. It's that it's already in me. And the act of loving is to put yourself in tune with what you love. Now think about this for a minute. I always use the example of a child or a baby. If you're trying to love a child or a baby, what you have to do is you have to get onto the vibration of where that child is, don't you? That's why parents are so just ridiculous in their goo, 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 goo like this. And every new parent swears, my friend was telling me, he was a very entertaining father. He said he swore before his sons were born he would never do that. But then as soon as they were born, he was goo, goo, gooing with everyone else and just going to the most ridiculous lengths to bring a smile to the face of that child. Because in loving that child, he had to offer that child the vibration that would allow him to meld his consciousness with that child. If he just sat there and, you know, sort of discussed calculus with this little baby without any any feeling from his heart and putting himself with that child, is that loving the child? Now, you see, that's, that's the point. If you love someone, you have to reach out and meld your consciousness with their consciousness, don't you? Isn't that what sometimes women get so mad at their husbands for? You know, you're just not with me. You're not listening to me. You're not doing this or doing that. Women, the, the ability to meld with other consciousness is a feminine quality. You know, men have to acquire that often from women or they have to develop that feminine side. 
women have to also understand. Oh, there's, it, was ta- it was so sweetly spoken in this story that I read about um, a Caucasian woman who married an American Indian. And she had to learn a lot about who he was. And he didn't speak to her once for three days. I mean, he didn't say a word to her. And finally, at the end, she was just beside herself. She, she said, you've got to talk to me. And he looked so startled. He said, I've been communicating with you constantly all these days. Because from his reality, his energy was completely connected to hers. And he really, he was, but she was waiting for him to say something. And so there's also, just to be fair to the men, there's also something that women define things their way and men define things their way. But the point is, if you really love someone, you reach out and you try to find their reality, don't you? I remember when David and I were first knowing each other and after about, I don't know, a year or two, I can be a little ditzy. I can be fairly grounded too, but I can also be a little bit ditzy about things. Sometimes I can be really ditzy about things. And we were traveling in the motorhome and we were doing something and there was some sort of decision that had to be made and I, I had to be involved in the decision and I was being pretty ditzy about it. You know, just kind of like, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that, maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. He was just standing there with this look of increasing, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? It was kind of a global look. And all of a sudden I laughed and I said, you used to think this was charming. <laughs> and he had to admit that he had, but not anymore. You know, there's like, when we're, when we're first inspired with love, we reach out as far as we can and try to be involved in every reality, and we're charmed by every reality, aren't we? And then gradually, we sink back in more into the ego self. We want people to come to us, and we're much less willing to reach out and go to them. That's why having children is such a beneficial thing for so many people, because... Children, they don't care about you. <laughs> they love you, but, you know, you don't even exist. You just, everything about you is there to serve them. <laughs> Suck you right in. Which, of course, if one does it with the right spirit, is very expansive. Because, why do I need to exist? I can just live to serve. But you have to do it with the right attitude. I don't want to go into that. It's too late to say this. But now what he's trying to tell us is, we bring God into the workplace from the point of view of expanding our consciousness, the more explicitly we can realize that we're expanding it into a conscious loving force that's really there, the more dynamic will be that relationship, the more grace we will attract. But in order to do that, we have to take the peace and harmony of our own nature, and in loving God, we give God what he is. Just as in loving the baby, you give the baby what the baby is, in that you give the child what the child is. In loving God, it's exactly the same. And it's within us to do that. We're not beggars before God. Oh, but we do have to discipline those contrary forces within us. And what we're always asking for is we want to be healed, but we don't want to have to be any different. Isn't that so? We just want it to be fixed. We're always wanting it to be fixed. But we don't want to change, actually, to have it fixed. We just want it fixed. So we pray and pray and pray that God will just fix it. And we think if we just pray hard enough, God will fix it. But we don't necessarily, until we get wiser, pull out of ourselves the very qualities that we're trying to have and then love God by offering them in. And this is at the very beginning when we were doing this meditation. I was saying, it's exactly like singing the right note. 
And literally, the, the divine vibrates the right note. It's literally the sound of Om that God is vibrating, which is why we actually meditate listening to that sound. And we try to, to go into that sound because going into that sound brings the whole vibration of our being in harmony with Om. And once we're on that wavelength, then we discover that we live in this current. This is who I am. And the most refined and elevated kind of prayer, this is what Swami is saying, is not asking for anything, but just offering ourselves into the reality that we seek because it's already our own reality. But as I was starting to say, you see, it takes discipline, it takes courage, it takes practice, it takes determination, it takes um, detachment. It takes all kinds of things to be able to do that. But in developing those qualities we do bring ourselves in tune. Just like the good singer practices and trains and practices and trains and does the scales and does the this and does the that so that they can match their voice with that perfect sound. And so we, every day of our lives, every minute of our lives, if we're capable of it, we just keep trying to to bring out of ourselves that quality, lift it up to the infinite, until it becomes effortlessly who we are. And then we have real success. And along the way, the, the, the exercise room, the gymnasium we've been working in, could be building a business, you know, making a lot of money, raising a family, building a house, all these different things, all the different sort of karmic conditions that we find ourselves in can be the instrument of our freedom if we face those challenges as God sent and use them for God realization, then what is worldly and what is spiritual? I don't know. Everything has become this beautifully integrated reality. And at the end of the incarnation, the mortgage has been paid off, the business has been built, but the real accomplishment has been the consciousness that we've developed by facing and achieving those things. And that's God's place in the business world, which is front and center, um, the same as it is in everything else that we do. Okay? So, that's my story for Lesson 23. Is there anything else that needs to be said? Yes, George? Uh-huh. That's all right. Uh-huh. I'm reminded of, uh, I think, I forget, one of, one of the first... Uh, climbers of uh, Mount Everest, uh, a renowned climber long, some time ago. He said, uh, one of his quotes I remember is uh, that uh, the goal is not to reach the top of the mountain but to it's something something uh, about the growth of the man. Exactly. You know, sometimes people do take on really extraordinary personal challenges and what what they what they really love about it is that it brings everything about them to such a fine edge of focus that's sometimes what rock climbers will say or people who go into really dangerous situations or, or you know really demanding is what they love about it is that it forces everything to come to a focus and then in that flow of energy that's what they love about it then they also may accomplish something but the best ones always know that it's, whether it's business or art or anything like that, the best of everyone 
It's growing from the inside out. It's not the thing that they're doing from the outside, it's that it's growing from right outside of them. Yeah, very interesting. I love to read stories of mountain climbers. and yeah. so on. Some are more refined than others. Some are, are somewhat more gross in the way they do it, but some of them are quite refined in the way they've uh, related to what they've accomplished. All right, so we've done 23. Next week we'll do 24, and then we'll see how long it takes. Yes? Sure. In my world, I'm hearing you say is so. So, so somehow, there, there, you know, there's, so there's male and female, which we're both born from, and then there's this world and that world. And somehow, all of that is what we call God or something. Call it something, um, and that the real essence of worldliness or spiritual is really actually what's going on inside ourselves and our mind and our intention with how we're approaching something? Well. So that if we, so we're approaching it actually from the, what you're saying from the inside out is. You know, I, you're, you're putting a whole lot of phrases together and each one of those has to be taken apart and we have to clarify what we mean by each of those. So what you're really asking is for more clarity than can be, can be created right in this moment at this time. Typically. Yeah, and it's it's not surprising that that you don't you can't string all of that together. Um, all of that can all be understood, but it has to be constructed step by step by step. Um, so the you know the, the the little bit of an answer I could give you is to say it this way: um, either consciousness is 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 as human consciousness. Either we're expanding our awareness and therefore moving using our will to move into a more expanded awareness, or we're using our will to seek satisfaction in lesser ways and therefore contracting our awareness. And all vocabulary is really about either expansion or contraction. But to really make that clear is a little bit bigger than what we're talking about. The implications of all that, I think you have to realize that if you really want to understand... um, what these teachings are, and because I know you, I know that you're, you're, you're more, you haven't been in it for 40 years yet, or maybe you have, but I don't know that. It's just that you have to take it piece by piece, and you have to stop and examine each little piece of it and really get it clear, and then move on to the next. And now this is like, this is Yogananda's um, way of expressing it. And one also has to sort through the fact there's lots of people who say lots of different things, and Lots of people interpret the Gita one way, they'll interpret it another, they'll interpret the Bible. You know, one has to just sort of choose an understanding and then have to walk through it very steadily and, and find out where you stand, find out what's true. So I don't feel that I can just take what you just said and clarify it for you because I think there's too much, um, too many pieces that we haven't yet worked out of it. Now, so I have to say to you, be patient and stick with it but I don't think we can answer it in just one minute tonight. Okay, I wish I could. Be pleasant if we could, wouldn't it? All right? Okay, that'll probably do it for tonight. Thank you.